Binks. The podcast is in your hands and you have butterfingers. <laughs> I'm totally unappreciated in my time. With these outlines, you can run this whole podcast every two weeks from this Zoom with minimal dorks for up to three months. You think that kind of insight is easy? Or cheap? Do you know any dork who can lose the first 10 episodes and keep up with the 200 million lines of quotes for what I bid for this job? Because if you can, I'd love to see him try. I'm sorry about your competitive problems, Jordan. I really am, but they are your problems. Oh, you're right, Gabe. You're absolutely right. You know, everything is my problem. I will not get drawn into another competitive debate with you, Jordan. I really will not. It's hardly any debate at all. I don't blame dorks for their losses, but I do ask that they pay for them. Thanks, Dad. Binks, the episode. Yeah, I'll get it started here after the introduction, okay? Okay? It'll eat up a lot of minutes. We'll lose part of the audience for a little while. You know, there's a finite amount of dorkdom that people can tolerate. We can't quote everything. Quiet, all of you. We're approaching the warm-up question. But before we get there, I'd like to welcome you all once again to Dorkfest, the podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. We guarantee you've been saving that bottle of champagne for this week's episode because the show we're unearthing for you today is of downright prehistoric proportions. We'll get to all that in a moment, but first, some introductions. My name is Jordan, and now that I've returned from the vending machine with a salty snack to offset all those sweets I've had today, we can go ahead and press execute on this episode. Joining me, of course, are the top minds in the fields of dorkdom, so let's hear from him. First up, he doesn't just want to be fed, he wants to hunt, and we're not about to suppress 65 million years of dork instincts. It's Josh. Josh, how you doing? Uh, sorry, just um, finishing up some goat. It's delicious. Next up, some may call him a blood-sucking lawyer, but I just call him my big brother. Dan, how you doing? Doing great. Just polished off some lamb chops. But if I do disappear during the course of the podcast, it's because, hey, when you got to go, you got to go. You got to go. You got to go. Just don't leave the kids in the car all by themselves. It's not a good look. Finally, you may think he's trying to look like a secret agent, but really he's just wearing a nice hat. Gabe, Gabe, we've got Gabe here. Gabe, how you doing? What? Oh, sorry. I'm, uh, I'm sorry. I totally wasn't smuggling raptor eggs in my photography bag. That are, that's surely going to be a poor idea later on down the line for us. Not, not doing that one bit. Don't get cheap on me, Gabe. That was Dan's mistake. Now, in the past weeks and months during our discussions on Star Wars, Jaws, and Indiana Jones, we joked that this is slowly becoming a John Williams appreciation podcast, and that tradition will continue this week. If you haven't guessed it already, and I'm sure you have, tonight we'll be taking an eventful stroll in our electric Ford Explorers through one of Dr. Hammond's amusement parks. But don't worry, if the podcast breaks down, the dorks won't eat you. We'll be discussing what is certainly one of the greatest summer blockbusters of all time, and quite possibly one of the greatest action films of all time, as well as the two immediate and of lesser quality sequels it spawned. Dorks, my dear Dorkfest listeners, welcome to our Jurassic Park podcast. As I mentioned a moment ago, in our discussion tonight, we will be limiting ourselves to the first three films, 1993's Jurassic Park, 1997's The Lost World, and 2001's Jurassic Park 3. In digging up their fossilized remains, we'll be looking at some of the great dinosaur and non-dinosaur scenes before ultimately trying to figure out exactly what it is we love about these movies. Before we open the gates of this episode and find out what we've got inside, I think it might be King Kong, it is our tradition to begin with a warm-up question. Now, in preparing this week, I was reminded of the fact that the original Jurassic Park first debuted in theaters on June 11th, 1993, exactly 27 years before another date of personal significance for one of us dorks. Gentlemen, do we have any guesses? 
I know what it is. Uh, nothing, nothing comes to mind for me. Uh, no. Uh -huh. Oh, but Josh, oh, really? is just, Josh is just the lesser brother because I know exactly what it is, Jordan. Clearly, clearly. Go for it, Dan. It's the birth of your firstborn son. It is. It is. It is Nolan's birthday, my son. Yes. And as uh, oh. the dork saw... Shoot. Does that mean he's destined to love Jurassic Park? Uh, it, he better. Um, if he That's doesn't... That's the correct answer, yes. Right, right. If he doesn't, then then we have some serious problems. But the, the, the odds, I believe, are high because he was already decked out in some dino onesies today. And that was not purposeful. It was just, they just happened to be picked out today. Not by me. Um, so I, I think he just, he just knew. Um, you know, he just, he just knew. Now, th this, of course, you know, thinking about my son got me thinking about my own dino-centric memories from my childhood. An obsession with dinosaurs is no doubt a phase that we all went through and one that I imagine many of our listeners experience as well. And so for this week's warm-up question, let's take a peek inside the toy chest and books of our childhood. Dorks, what was your favorite dinosaur growing up? Josh, you're up first. Uh, my favorite is the same as Dr. Alan Grant. It was the Triceratops, a uh, herbivore from the Cretaceous period, uh, three horns on its head and a bony frill at the back. Um, looked up some stats today, about three times the size of a modern hippopotamus that what the Triceratops was. This was quite a creature, and I have a theory about why it was my favorite. Like certainly the horns were cool and it was easy to recognize, but I think it being a quadruped, a four-legged dinosaur makes the toys easier to play with. So I think that that probably had something to do with it too. My favorite was definitely the Triceratops. Absolutely, a classic pick. And and Josh, I, I certainly think that a lot of our interest in these dinosaurs sp certainly spawned by the toys that we got to play with in, in experiencing them. So it's so a great start for us there. Uh, Dan, what about you? What was your favorite dino growing up? I am going to go with what I believe is another Vegisaurus, and I'm going to say the Stegosaurus, because like Josh, I think, I think the quadruped dinosaur argument is a good one, because you're right, when playing with the toys, they're just easier to stand up. I remember we had this great plastic Stegosaurus, just a really kind of unique look with the the kind of fins at the top of its you know its spine there and then kind of the long snouty look i was thrilled to see the stegosaurus included in the second jurassic park offering always enjoyed the triceratops as well but give me stegosaurus please and Dan, if I remember correctly, I feel like the the fins or the spikes on that stegosaurus were were a wee bit sharp, so you had to be you had to be a little careful playing with it. But a, a nice nice real life effect there. Yeah, they're, you called, gotta... pla they're called plates, guys. Okay, well, excuse the, the, the us. Dino, the dino kids are going to be yeah. Excuse us, to us a high for here. not having children completely obsessed with dinosaurs at the moment. I, I was thinking that, you know, in, in terms of our pronunciation of all of these dinosaurs, we do need to make sure that we're getting them right. Otherwise, we will be we will be hearing from from the dino experts that that live that live with Josh. Um, yeah, let's let's give a quick quick shout out to Ryan and Jill because they will call us out if we get this wrong. To that point, Dan, uh, both of them said that their favorite was the Stegosaurus. So clearly, your head is in the right place. We reach. 
Well, I mean, that can't be said too often in terms of Dan's head being set in the right place. But every once in a while, it is, it is good to hear that. Um, I'll go ahead and jump in there next. Um, a couple of different ones that I thought about, but none of, actually, no, Stegosaurus was on my list, but it was the third one on the list. Bit too much of a classic choice um, for me. I'm going to go with the uh, Pachycephalosaurus. I think I'm going to get some extra points for the pronunciation there, I hope. Um, it directly translates, I want to make sure that I get this right, to thick-headed lizard. Um, and this is, of course, an animal that appeared in the second Jurassic Park film. Um, it's famous for having uh, the, the, the cranium that's directly attached to its spine, such that it's, it's excellent for ramming speed. Um, and this was my favorite in part, or why I chose this one in large part, was because... Um, because of the toy that I had growing up. You know, when I was thinking about this question over the course of the past week, I immediately thought of that toy. Um, one of the few two-legged uh, two dinosaurs that, that it still wasn't too hard to keep, it, to, to keep it level and keep it standing up, perhaps because it was already set up in its ramming position. In terms of my favorite dinosaur growing up, Pachycephalosaurus. Gabe, take us home. Uh, I'll round out the way it started. Uh, my favorite growing up was the Triceratops. And I can't, I uh, have to say, it wasn't even for that deep of a reason. Um, it had more to do, I think, with um, my fondness for the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers of the era and uh, my, my, how much I enjoyed the Blue Ranger, Billy. He had that cool lance weapon, and his, uh, his totem zord and animal was the Triceratops. Uh, so that was always a nice linkage there. I always, uh, with respect to um, the quadruped point, uh, I think also that just makes him easier to ride, right? You're a kid, you learn that these these big old monsters actually roam the earth. And it's like, oh, okay, all right, maybe, you know, maybe there is some truth to what I'm being told around here. And then you can imagine riding them, but it's a lot, e lot more accessible. Excellent work, excellent work. Um, just one last point, because the Triceratops came up twice. Um, one other dinosaur that I was thinking about bringing up, I had to, I had to look up the pronunciation for this one, the Styracosaurus. Um, it translates to um, spiked lizard. Part of the reason that I like this one is that it was a nice kind of mix between uh, like almost like a current rhino with a single horn, uh, but then it also kind of had the, the spikes around the back of its mane, so, uh, similar to a triceratops. So, so thanks for taking that trip down memory lane with me, dorks. Um, should we chance moving on to the one point question? Please, chance it. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the one-point question, and we're going to be going to Josh first. Josh, before we get to talking about the real meat of these movies, I'd like to hear you start talking about the best non-dino scenes and what we love about them. So one-point question to Josh. Take it away. So I'm going to start with Mr. DNA. Um, I think this is one of these like explanation or exposition type scenes that can often in science fiction movies seem uh, disingenuous when played too earnestly. I'm thinking specifically of Star Trek 09, which, which, you know, they have that scene where they explain the alternate dimension that they're all, the alternate timeline that they're all in. And it's like they pause for a second to look at the camera to make sure that the audience is buying this. And with Mr. DNA, it's so playful and fun and th that it just makes you immediately not take the science too seriously. It's science that is perfectly understandable for a nine-year-old. That's how old I was when I saw this movie in theaters. I immediately knew what was going on, and it's still basically plausible for me today. 
there's a fun little interplay with uh, John Hammond, you know, talking to himself and then being cloned on screen. Uh, and then you have Malcolm and Ellie and Grant talking amongst themselves about like what does make sense about this, what doesn't make sense about this. They can't help themselves at some point be, being excited by the science while also, you know, being skeptical about it. I just think it's a, it, it's a pretty cool scene in which you don't see any of the dinosaurs, which is the, often the flaw with monster movies like this, is keeping the excitement going when you can't see the dinosaurs. And I think this was a fun way of, you know, keeping that excitement going, having a little fun, but also telling you something you needed to know in order to believe what you were gonna see later. That is a, a truly great scene, and you're right. It accomplishes some some exposition without clubbing you over the head with it. I, I do, upon re-watching that over the weekend, I do question the sustainability of that opening sequence with John Hammond because it does presuppose that John Hammond is going to be physically guiding every single one of these tours through Jurassic Park like what the guy's never going to get sick. He's never going to take a day of vacation. Um, so I, I do question that sustainability long-term a little bit, but I do really like that scene. The scene that I want to focus on, at least initially uh, happens in the very beginning. It's our introduction to Dr. Grant and to Ellie in Montana. John Hammond shows up to convince them to visit Jurassic park, but I kind of want to go before Hammond even arrives because we get so much great character character building with Dr. Grant specifically and with Ellie as well in that wonderful scene when they they launch the charge down to check out the Velociraptor fossil and we get this great insight into Dr. Grant he's no good with technology number one and then he's no good with children when he scares the kid who thinks it looks like a six-foot turkey and you can kind of laugh the scene off except that the scene does a really good job of explaining the dangers of velociraptors. And at 12 years old, when I saw this movie, actually, no, I only would have been 11 yet. I would not have experienced my 12th birthday yet uh, in June of 1993. So 11 years old, I didn't know what a velociraptor was. And so the scene does a really nice job of setting the table for the fear that you will come to experience through the Velociraptors, again, without clubbing you over the head with it. But it also does some great jobs about introducing uh, Dr. Grant's love of dinosaurs, Ellie's love of dinosaurs, their collective love of digging up dinosaur bones and, and their sort of, you know, fascination with being archaeologists and, and, and digging or, you know, and digging up the dinosaur bones and the science associated with that. And then John Hammond shows up and it's, you know, who's the jerk and who the hell do you think you are? And But then all of a sudden, like, Hammond says in that scene, I see my $50,000 has been put to good use. And so you come to gain some perspective there, like, okay, this guy's, you know, funding some serious dough, but also $50,000, that, that's, they both can't live on that, plus their team. And so you, I think you come to understand and appreciate the extent to which, okay, they're making ends meet. And obviously they're not in this for the money. They're in it for the science. And then, okay, now I'm going to fund your dig for three years. So I think that helps kind of explain why they 
okay, yeah, we'll drop whatever it is we're doing because we have been, you know, just kind of scraping by here. He's going to fund the dig for three years. Okay, we're all in. Like, it doesn't matter where we're going. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We're all in. But I think that scene in particular really helps introduce those characters extremely well and also, again, sets the stage for the velociraptors extremely well. We know the the Triceratops, everybody knows the T-Rex going in, but Raptors, I was not personally terribly familiar with, sets a really nice stage there, I think, for what's to come. And Dan, I like that you bring that up too, contrasting it to a a non-dinosaur theme in a later film, Jurassic Park 3. Now, I do have a hot take regarding Jurassic Park 3 that we will get to later, Uh, but Dan, specifically, I'm thinking about um, the moment towards the beginning of that film, when, when, when Dr. Grant says, you know, there's no force on heaven nor earth that will get me on that island. And then all of a sudden, 24 hours later, he's on that island because some guy who owns a paint business has written him a check that he hasn't checked to make sure we'll actually catch. And, and, and you don't have that same plausibility that you have and that you just referenced in the first movie. Um, so, you know, sort of contrasting those two, they really took the time to make sure that it's, that it's still believable that these two scientists would drop everything that they're doing, would drop the dig that's clearly of a lot of importance to them to go to what they just know is a sort of amusement park or, or a nature preserve, as, as, as Hammond refers to it. Um, so, again, just sort of contrasting those two, I think, Dan, you, you make a good point about the believability um, factor in, in that opening scene or near opening scene of Jurassic Park. I just want to push back there a little bit because I think what the first film does really well is establish the idea that, okay, these guys dig up dinosaur bones for a living. They're not super wealthy. They have to, you know, they have to plead for grants. No, no pun intended, not Dr. Grant, but actual monetary grants to be able to make ends meet. But then by the third movie, he says that no power on heaven or earth will put me there until, yeah, this guy shows up and writes him a check. But it's like, hang on a second. There had to be a book deal here. He's clearly on some kind of lecture tour. Like he's clearly established at that point. And so we're supposed to believe that all these fears, all these horror stories that he's experienced, all the guy's got to do is write a check for him to go, you know, back flying over you know, Isla Nublar or, or Isla Soner. Like, I, I, I don't buy that a whole, like in rewatching that movie again recently, that really stuck with me. Like, okay, so now Dr. Grant is just a mercenary. All you got to do is put enough zeros on the check. That's really kind of a, a disturbing character development. Whereas I think in the first one, they establish enough backbone to the two of them that it's believable. Plus there's not the horrible experience on Jurassic Park yet to jade their future experiences. Boy, it's almost like Jurassic Park 3 was cobbled together, reverse engineered from the dinosaur scenes backwards. It's almost like it's kind of lazy. Is that, Gabe, what actually happened? No, I'm just speculating. (laughs) I I actually think that they, like, switched scripts on that movie at the very last minute. uh, Yeah, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of hands in in this, uh, a lot of cooks in that kitchen. Normally the undoing of, of any kind of film. But no, it's something that we're touching upon is, um, and I think it is part of this is just diminishing returns as as sequels go on. But the the points about Jurassic Park establishing really, and there's a cool interplay, um, is they establish very early on their realistic bona fides and exactly how they're going to step over that line, and it's all in service of that first shot, right? Which we'll talk about, I'm certain, in, in a little bit. But they have to try tread a very fine line between 
yeah, the the reasons that we're cobbling all these excellent characters together, but also yeah, the believability of everything. And the Mr. DNA section is um, it's also a great way to bring the kids in. I mean, this is a it's an all ages, not maybe not quite a family movie, but it's an it's an all ages blockbuster. Um, and that's an easy way to ex sort of explain away for everybody, you know, again, without, because the other way to try and gain all that believability is to go, yeah, the hard science route or even the bad science route as somebody who, as uh, Josh, I think you quipped Star Trek 09. Yeah. Who says the red matter doesn't make sense? What does make sense is uh, the next thing that I want to talk about. And that's when Grant and Lex and Tim are climbing the fence. You talk about a Gabe about it being an all ages blockbuster Another thing that got kids scared at a very, very early age is being electrocuted in, in like how many like Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner cartoons is somebody getting electrocuted. Kids learn at a very young age that is something to be afraid of. And for that to be this threat for Lex and Tim and then for Tim to actually get electrocuted when they finally get the power back on and the way that scene cuts back and forth. It is extremely suspenseful and no dinosaurs in it. And how, how often does a movie like this maintain any sort of suspense with, without the monster in it? That's a great scene where they do that. Yeah, uh, these movies do make good use every now and then of a, a suspenseful non-dino scene. That's definitely the one, the cut back and forth, um, just the suspense of when is the power going to get back on? Is he going to be off the, the fence in time? which itself, yeah, is the nice callback to Dr. Grant, you know, doing a fake out. He's getting a little better with kids. He's only faking death. He's getting there. But then also I'm thinking of The Lost World where you've got that, um, and I suppose the dinos sort of help with this, but there's also a lot of sort of man-made or environmental stuff going on when the trailer goes over the edge of the cliff. Um, eventually that stops being less dinos and more just gravity. Since we mentioned John Spencer in The Rock in our last podcast, uh, I thought it was only fair to note Richard Schiff uh, here in The Lost World. Uh, we keep doing this. We'll eventually assemble the full West Wing crew. But yeah, the, the movies do make point. Uh, they definitely make a point to not rely solely on the dinosaurs for all the, all the suspense, all the, all the terror, all the, all the tenseness. Um, and mostly the movies make pretty good use of that. You know, another scene that does that quite well, that does not involve any live dinosaurs or rather moving dinosaurs is of course Nedry's heist um, of, the, of the dinosaur embryos. Um, you have the, you know, the great beginning to that scene where he's kind of joking about needing to get a salty snack, checking to see if anybody wants a drink or anything from the vending machines. But then he, he drops in that little line about like, oh, I, you know, I, you asked me to debug the phones, so I debug the phones. Uh, but, you know, the systems might give out for the next like 18, 20 minutes or so. But you just have the, the, the suspense going through. And, and it's a very well thought out heist. He, he's planned out the algorithm on the computer to have the cameras shut off at just the right time. He's also got his stopwatch checking to make sure you have the Barbasol container that he's then putting all of the different embryos in. So, you know, with, with that scene, I think the suspense is partly built in because of the fact that it's a heist. It's also, of course, built in by the, by the, by the music, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and mention it for the first time. I'm sure it won't be the last provided by John Williams during that scene. So, you know, another scene that I think builds up some of that suspense, even though you don't have the dinosaurs waiting to, to pop out at any angle. I like that scene too, Jay. And in general, I like every Dennis Nedry scene. I just, I worry that that is because I like Newman from Seinfeld. In trying to watch this movie with a little bit more of a critical eye, I think when 
Halloween night is, is uh, I think I've heard Gabe say in the past, acting in a different movie than everyone else. And I, I, I think he, like, especially that scene you're talking about, Jay, where he's kind of stuttering through it, like, holy heck, c- could he sound any more guilty that, that about, what he's, uh, about what he's about to do? And uh, the, the, the lunch scene with, with Dodgson is funny and all, but you know, they put in that like squeak when the, when the Barbasol can goes off. It's all fun and it's all funny and I like it all. I, I just worry that it's because I kind of have a soft spot for Wayne Knight rather than it actually working for the movie. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying, Josh, and you're and you're right. It does Newman, not Newman, Nedry does he's, see. He's, yeah, he's just Newman, even though he's you know Al from Al's Toy Barn. I mean, or Dennis Nedry. I mean, Nedry does come off rather guilty during that stuttering, stammering moment. But you do also have to kind of put yourself in his shoes. He is woefully out of his depth at this point. I mean, this is a guy who is a computer programmer and that's really about it. He's not about heisting 18 or 15 dinosaur embryos to turn it into a cool 1.5 mil. And yet that is basically the assignment. And to Jordan's point about the suspense of this particular scene, John Hammond and InGen are one non-tropical stormy day away from this plan going absolutely perfectly because they were understaffed and there's no way anybody is figuring out what Nedry did until it's too late. And if that goes according to plan, then you basically fast forward to, I know we're not talking Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, but what is the end result of that movie with now everybody having their hands on dinosaurs? That basically is what's going to happen if that tropical storm doesn't pass through and Nedry is able to, you know, make off with the Barbasol can. The little squeak when he when he slips and the Barbasol can goes rolling down the side of that little hill there. That's a little goofy. Um, but yeah, you know what? I, I, I think Nedry is a believable character. I think that scene that you're referencing is believable because I do think he is so woefully out of his depth. But, but I do think, to Jordan's point, there is great suspense in that scene. I can't believe that we're talking about non-dinosaur scenes and we are only just now getting to lunch at Jurassic Park. Chilean sea bass, I believe, is on the menu. But really what's on the menu is Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblooming, his wonderful Ian Malcolm. I referenced earlier how in that scene in Montana, we got some great character insight and some great character development into Ellie Sadler and and Dr. Grant. Well, this is the scene where we really come to know what Ian Malcolm is all about as it relates to this particular movie. And he's so over the top and he's so pompous and he's so Jeff Goldblum. I mean, it's perfect casting. He just eats this role for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And at the end of it, you're left wondering, okay, wait a minute. I thought this was going to be a cool, fun park and we were going to have a great time. And now Jeff Goldblum's told me it's a bad idea. And Ellie Sadler's not on board because there are poisonous plants in the visitor center. And Dr. Grant 
seems the least skeptical of all, but he does seem to err on the side of the line that the former two do. And now, yeah, all you're left with is the blood-sucking lawyer who thinks it's a great idea because they're going to charge 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and despite the coupon day, it's they're going to make a ton of money. So, But that scene is just so, so good. I mean, Jeff Goldblum steals the show, and rightfully so, I think. Yeah, I think that's the best dialogue in the movie, that scene, and, and especially Malcolm. But like you said, Dan, Ellie and Grant also come with, with good points. And you also get a clear picture into what Hammond's motivation are, motivations are. He's certainly intrigued by the wonder of these creatures, but he's by no means altruistic. He, he, he wants to make a buck. Like, the, this is why he did this and isn't doing this, you know, just purely as research for science. Sure, he wants to entertain people. Sure, he's intrigued by the wonder of dinosaurs, but he wants to make some money. And, you know, you can tell when he kind of gives that chuckle about the coupon day, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll have, we'll have one of those every couple of years, you know, but and, and, until then the, the, the registers are going to be ka-ching, 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 because everyone agrees these dinosaurs are amazing. Well, and, and to Malcolm's point, you've patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're going to sell And those lunchboxes were practically like available in the lobby of the movie theater. Right. And I wanted one for sure. I mean, it is amazing. It, eventually, these uh, Jurassic Park was a whole new era of toy sales. I was going to say, as I was watching The Lost World, it occurred to me that I think I remember the toys and the commercials for those toys better than I remembered the movie. I wanted to say it was said that, um, yeah, Nedry might be in his own movie. And I think there might be some, and I think there might be something to that, Josh. But I think it's fair to say, too, that Jeff Goldblum is always in his own movie. Um, and this one just also happens to be Jurassic Park. He, he does sync up perfectly to Ian Malcolm. We need that. Uh, another phrase I've used a couple times, Quicksilver in the mix. And Jeff Goldblum is that. He, he also is very helpful in, I think, grounding the movie and being the character to comment, because no one else is seeing it, on how ridiculous everything is. Um, and with respect to, to Nedry, everybody who thinks they're in control on this island, no matter what in the full plot or scheme, they always think they're in control of it and no one knows what they're meddling with. Um, and Nedry's just, you know, one small microcosm of that, of that larger story. And one last point on Nedry too, you know, Dan, you mentioned the tropical, tropical storm. And I think that also provides a little bit of believability to how awkward he is acting in that moment, because we can't forget that just moments before he's making up this story about debugging the phones, that he was talking to his contact on the boat, trying to get more time. So he now knows that he has to speed everything up. He said he thought it was going to take at least 20 minutes, thought he could get it down to 18, but now the guy's only going to give him maybe 15 minutes. He might not even still be there. So I think that does provide a little bit of plausibility for the way that Nedry is acting. That said, you probably cast Wayne Knight because he's going to be a little bit of a goofball. And yeah, we've, we've referenced a couple of times that, that little like kazoo noise that you get as he's going down the hill. Um, that's over the top, but you can laugh at him a little bit, and that's why you, and that's why you cast him. I, I do want to talk just a little bit about the Lost World and a couple of scenes that I really like in there. Um, one short one that I noticed upon rewatching it this weekend, right before you have the great scene between Jeff Goldblum and Richard Attenborough, where they're you know sort of you're talking about the excursion that 
that Ian Malcolm will eventually make to the island. You have this really brief scene where Ian Malcolm is is reintroduced or meets back up with Lex and Tim. And I liked that scene. I noticed uh, that it's kind of like a role reversal from the first movie. In the first movie, you have, when you're introduced to Lex and Tim, they're coming up the stairs. You have Hammond yelling, kids! And that's reversed in the second movie. Lex and Tim are coming down the stairs, and it's actually Goldblum that said that it doesn't give out the same sort of yell, but he says the same line. So just notice an interesting sort of um, interplay there. And then the other scene that I really, really like, and it's really more that I just like the inter- interplay between these two characters, um, Nick Van Owen versus Roland. Um, it, you know, specifically, I'm thinking about the scene where they're walking in the rain, and you have these this budding heads between two totally different types of characters, yet there seems to be a little bit of a mutual respect between the two. Nick Van Owen says, like, you seem to have, you know, at least an iota, or you seem to have at least a little bit of common sense. What on earth are you doing here? And at that point, that's when Roland and says to him like well you know this is my code this is the code that i live by the the second greatest predator must take him down and he's going to use this unless unless he happens to surrender but then there's also this great interplay between those two characters that as roland is trying to hunt the t-rex nick van owen is also subtly trying to hunt roland and trying to and ultimately is able to sabotage his weapon so again just those two non-dino scenes in the lost world i thought i thought were some, some some nice work I also like the scene with Goldblum and Attenborough. I mean, that is certainly an over-the-top exposition scene. You know, there's some serious winking at the camera going on there. But those two actors are just so charming. Attenborough is 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 just so warm, and Goldblum in in both of these movies is is electric and dynamic, and you just love watching him. And you know, some of the lines. That, that he gives like oh, is, so there's another island with dinosaurs no fences this time uh you know the 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 byplay of uh we're not making the same mistakes again no you're making all new ones um <laughs> there, there's some real gems in in that sequence yeah you're gonna send people very few people on, on the, the ground, ground. <laughs> yeah yeah he can't understand what's going on here i think that scene is important Jordan, you talked about the motivations of John Hammond. And I I guess in thinking about some of these scenes, I am admittedly confused about his motivations. Because, Josh, I think you're right. In the lunch scene, it becomes clear that, yes, he's in the entertainment business, but he's also in the money-making business. And we see that money-making business really realized in Jurassic World, which I know we're not discussing, but, you know, Verizon presents Indominus Rex or whatever it becomes, that's taking it to, you know, Spinal Tap 11. But then there's a scene in the original, the flea circus scene, where he's seated at the table with Ellie and and everything has gone haywire now. And I think at this point, we still don't know. He does still not know if Lex and Tim are safe. Where's Dr. Grant? Um, And he said, you know, I wanted to create something not devoid of merit. Like, it seems like he wants to create something real, something that people can enjoy. And in that moment, it doesn't seem like making a buck is the true motivation. Then he goes through this experience where the park goes to you know where. And now in the next movie, it's, Now I'm, you know, I think even Ian Malcolm says like capitalist to, you know, conservationist in just four years. But you're also kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know, because four years ago, you were interested in making money and, and we had this really bad experience. So I guess I'm kind of struggling with 
what are his motivations? And, and maybe they're not fully flushed out or, or you know, realized or pinpointed uh, quite as nicely as, as maybe I'd prefer. I mean, even in that scene in The Lost World we're talking about, the, the exposition-heavy one, um, Ian Malcolm has a line, uh, you went from capitalist to naturalist in four years, um, sort of even commenting on that, on that hair turn. And, you know, if one was being a little cynical, one could simply say, well, they're just trying to cover all the ground and they understand that this is kind of an about face for how they established Hammond and here's a line that covers it. But I think it's also fair to say that um, Hammond is not, he's not unaffected by the first movie. He's, he's very much affected by the events of the first movie. And I think it reframe, I think it's fair to say that reframes his mission. So while his desire is, you know, whether it's in a P.T. Barnum sense or in just another sort of like misunderstood genius in his time sense, he's trying to create, as you say, something new, uh, something that hasn't been seen. And yeah, it's in the name of entertainment. But boy, isn't that just the world we live in, especially in 1993? And I think it speaks to uh, the various strengths of this franchise, especially, of course, in the first movie that we're speaking so much about scenes that don't even have cool dinosaurs in them right now. And Dan, just one last point where talking about Hammond, you referenced the the scene between Hammond and Ellie as they're eating ice cream, or it might be right before they're eating ice cream. Um, and I, I read that scene a little bit differently. I, I read that scene as Hammond more trying to rationalize things or, or wrap his mind around things because of that. And I think the line that he says, I think he actually said, so he's talking about the, the flea circus and he wanted to create something that wasn't an illusion. And he says that that is a task not devoid of merit. And I feel like what he's trying to do there is he's trying to rationalize it for himself. He's, he's looking at the chaos that he's created. He's looking at the potential tragedies that, he's, that, that have occurred because of the things that he's created. And he's trying to rationalize it in some way for himself. So it's total revisionist history then for John Hammond. He was out to make a buck. And then when he realized that it was a bad way to make a buck, that's maybe start part of the start of the transition that Gabe was referencing, you know, be, being affected by those events. And, but, but that seems a little disingenuous as well, because it's awfully quick to, Oh, uh oh, wait a minute. This was potentially a bad idea. You mean making dinosaurs and having people come visit them? That might have been a bad idea. It seems a little late for that. Did you say disingenuous? So, all right, let, let me take a crack at Hammond's motivation because there's something that's dawning on me as you guys are talking. And, you know, whether it, I, see, because I think it's a, it's a mix for Hammond. He wants to make money, but he also, wants to create this wonderful thing and he also wants to kind of be friends with everybody and be the be the center of attention i think it's it's possibly about control most of all for hammond he wants to be you know he clearly enjoys being like president ceo number one guy for this jurassic park um, and then in that scene with the ice cream where he gets the most animated is when he says, when we have control again. And then maybe in Lost World, he's trying to sort of claw back some of the control that he's lost when the board votes him out by, you know, taking this campaign public. He's like, I'll, I'll try and regain control of the island this way. Because I don't think it's fair to say that Hammond is... is driven only by money. Uh, I mean, in, in the book, that's kind of the way Hammond is written, but Richard Attenborough just plays it much more warmly than that. 
Uh, and so I, I, I don't think that's fair to the movie character. I think that's a good read, Josh. Um, I like the point too you make about how he is warm and friendly. He's trying to get all the best people together so they can do this great thing and you know make this amazing creation. But he, it does begin and end with him, doesn't it? I mean, this is also <laughs> was it ego, Captain? It is a little bit of, um, and I think this spins in a little bit to this idea of legacy, his legacy that we're talking about here, where. At first, you know, he's going to be the guy that created Jurassic Park. I mean, it, it, he is the guy playing God. It's his idea to bring all these things back from the dead and, and showcase them to the masses. And when that doesn't work out so much, okay, so he takes a look at himself and he retools and he's like, no, this is what we need to do now. But it's no less, again, kind of a, a legacy, a look at his legacy. How do we preserve what we've done? Eventually you do it over like six movies. Some really, really great points made by all um, as we've talked about the the non-dinosaur scenes. And just one kind of last last thought that I want to add in there before I award some points. Um, you know, we're talking about, I mean, Josh, you were talking about the, the sort of complicated nature of Hammond's character. And it makes me think too, you know, you mentioned like it's not all about money for him. And it made me think of a dinosaur scene that we might be talking about in the moment and where he mentioned that he's, you know, present for the birth of every dinosaur on that island. Someone who's purely inspired or purely motivated by money isn't going to be making that effort to constantly be present for each of the birth, for the birth of each of those, those dinosaurs. So I think that was a good point for you. And Josh, a large part of the reason why you will be awarded this one point first though, just to give some credit um, where credit is due, Dan, you did just a you know really nice job in terms of talking about the believability um, that Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant sort of have to go through or, or the believability of, of, of the decisions that they made. So really, really nice job in terms of talking about that. And then also contrasting that to the lack of believability that we have in, in Dr. Grant actually going to the island in Jurassic Park 3. Um, Gabe, you know, bringing up Richard Schiff, Eddie's you know, Dark Horse, one of my favorite characters in the Lost World, and he's and he's just a guy like you know, it's it's him, it's him and 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 I believe it's Ajay. You know, those two guys are just like ah, oh, like couldn't they have made it? It would have been so nice for them to make it. So well, you know, Gabe, exactly. he's trying to save everybody, and then it's like here, thanks. I'll yeah. eat now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it just fed like you're, I assume that you're talking about my friend. Um, so, you know, just, you know, great job bringing him up, but, but ultimately the one point will be going to Josh. Um, I think Josh, you did a great job of going through the deep analysis of Hammond as a character and sort of giving us a, a way of grappling with him and understanding him as best that we can. So Josh, one point to you. Nicely done. Spared no expense. Now, eventually, we do plan to talk about dinosaurs on our dinosaur podcast, so let's do just that and move on to our two-point question. Dan, we're going to start with you. What are some of the best and some of the worst dinosaur scenes, and what do we love or hate about them? I'm going to start with the best, and for me, the best dinosaur scene, and it's the first time you get a real good look at a dinosaur. It's the Brachiosaurus scene. It's the scene that you get the Jurassic Park theme from John Williams. It's the big colossal payoff of seeing a dinosaur on the big screen. I remember going to see this movie in the theaters with my dear childhood friend, Michael, and being completely blown away by this movie overall, but this scene in particular. 
Uh, people of an earlier generation reference the original 1977 Star Wars, seeing that in the theaters and acknowledging that they had never seen anything like that on a movie screen before. And this movie and this scene in particular is that movie moment for me. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. And yes, the CGI graphics and effects have improved in the 27 years since this movie was released. But those effects are still awfully good by today's standards. And going back and rewatching that movie, those effects are just dynamite and they come to life in this particular scene. And the way this scene is shot is so beautifully crafted by Spielberg. First of all, you get the reveal of the dinosaur itself and the sweeping fanfare from John Williams and the tremendous performances by Sam Neill and Laura Dern. I mean, they are believably aghast at this moment. And then the way the camera work is constructed in such a way to juxtapose the scale of our characters and the scale of this dinosaur. And maybe that's why they chose the Brachiosaurus because of its long neck and its massive scale to be able to juxtapose that with our human relatable characters and to put this into perspective about what we're dealing with here. It's just so masterfully done. It's masterfully acted. Then you get, so after you get the one dinosaur and he, he leaps up and he grabs the, the branches and he comes, you know, crashing back down and this is the one dinosaur. And it's like, oh my God, it's a dinosaur. It's, it, it's a dinosaur. Um, and then you get the great scene too, where now we've got the Brachiosaurus's they're moving in herds. They do move in herds. We see other dinosaurs kind of in that little marsh area and there it is. And you're like, oh my God, we're 30 minutes in or whatever it is we are. And there's dinosaurs on the big screen and we've still got 90 minutes left of this. I cannot believe, I have no idea what's going to be in store later. And I think, and Gabe, maybe you can speak a little better to this. Um, the computer effects in that moment, I have to believe are a lot more difficult to pull off in sunny, well-lit, daylight because of the black edges that you can see around these creatures, but it's still really well pulled off. We get a lot of dinosaur scenes later on at night or in dark and rainy conditions, and I have to believe it's a lot easier to kind of hide some of that animation when it's just generally a darker scene. This is well lit. It's in the middle of the daytime. It's a sunny day. The storm hasn't rolled in yet. And this dinosaur looks unbelievable on the screen. It's a great scene, but for me, it's the best scene because of the personal moment of seeing it on the big screen and just being completely blown away. It's absolutely the perfect scale um, for that moment. I mean, the, the wonder is carried by so many of the pieces of the movie that you've named there. Yeah, by Sam Neill and by Laura Dern, by John Williams especially. But it's true, uh, yeah, what, A, I think you technically solve the problem of realistic dinosaurs in the daytime by just throwing a lot of money at that one particular shot because you know it's the reveal. I mean, you you have everybody spending extra hours on the shading there, anything, you know, whatever it's going to take. And one of the things that, is, that Jurassic Park remains notable for, yeah, in its effects is how good they still hold up, how well they hold up still today. And part of that is, yeah, how they're, how they're used, you know, darkness and, and some scattered light with rain uh, that can do a lot to help 
create a full picture in your mind of what are actually pieces of a dinosaur and never the whole one. What, what helps too also is, as I recall, that first shot that we're talking about, it's a, it's a wide. I mean, you're looking at, it's the full vista of Jurassic Park in all its glory. And that helps too when you've got these things at a distance and not immediately at scale. When you've got clearly human, um, we, we talk about this when we talk about uh, the Star Wars prequels, when you've got clearly human things juxtaposed against clearly non-human things, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it, it never works. Um, but the, Spielberg's a master of his craft and, and knows how to join these, these images. In terms of the scale of that moment, too, I'm also, it's occurring to me that at one point during that scene, you can hear, like, the distant roar of another dinosaur, and it's just that, like, that, that, that tiny decision that's made by Spielberg um, and whoever the sound designer is, I, I, I assume Gabe will be looking up here momentarily and will be able to tell me, maybe it's Ben Burt, um, but <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's probably not. Um, but just the attention to detail in that moment, to have that sort of distant roar in the background to, to tell us that, okay, you're going to see this monumental scene right here, but there are dinosaurs like this across that entire island, and you will be seeing them later. And it's capped by the quote of the movie, welcome to Jurassic Park. And Richard Attenborough just knocks that one right out of Jurassic Park. Um, my favorite uh, dinosaur scene and the one that I consider to be the best is another one that plays with the scale idea really well, and it's the first T-Rex attack. I mean, Dan, you talk about being wowed by the Brachiosaurus, and I certainly was too. I, I, I definitely want to echo your sentiment about sitting in the theater and having your whole you know, movie-watching mind and world changed by watching this movie. But that scene was like okay, now down to business. Okay, we can sit back and watch these dinosaurs, but now we are in it with these dinosaurs and surviving and having the, 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 having the wreck step through and give that fantastic roar. Jordan, you talked about the sound. The sound of the roars of these dinosaurs, especially the T-Rex, is just spine tingling i mean it is it is blood curdling that scream it is so recognizable and so intimidating so fierce technically to to did it they to do it they mixed together a bunch of different animals and to get the extra little squeal uh, out of it they included a baby elephant you know the the thing that the the things that these people do to create the the sounds that that make these these movies transcendent the way they are but then to have uh, the 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 Rex crashing through the top of their Lex and Tim's Ford Explorer and bracing up against it. And I, I can just always picture that part where the glass is just like almost slipping, it just, just barely keeping it, it's th their hands and feet on that glass as the Rex is just almost gets through. Oh man, that, that scene was you know really terrifying for me as a nine-year-old kid but still is really scary and I think what you guys are saying about the scale is really important big things are most scary when they are up against small things you know there are a ton of these monster movies now where it's Godzilla versus King Kong or whatever and it's like okay well they're the same size so 
you know, a lot of stuff's going to get knocked over, but, you know, it's one thing against one thing. When it's a massive T-Rex going against Lex and Tim, and, you know, Tim was probably my age when I was watching this movie, so I really related to, to little Timmy. And, I mean, so I think that really added to the terror of it, that juxtaposition of the scale. These movies are tremendous in their application of tension and, and just stress as a result. I honestly, full disclosure, I came to Jurassic Park very late. Um, like, I think I was actually in college by the time I saw the first one. I just missed it completely I, age-wise. You know, I'm four years old when the first one comes out. But yeah, I mean, that, that first T-Rex. Your mom didn't take you when you were four? <laughs> really? Um, no, nor, okay. did I up, okay. nor did I end up getting to rent it from Blockbuster later. Um, which is a good thing, too, because I'm sure um, a T-Rex just would have crashed right through that, too. Oh, by the by, uh, it's worth mentioning that, uh, no, Ben Burt was not the sound designer for Jurassic Park. However, uh, George Lucas did supervise the sound crew, and the sound designer Gary Rydstrom, perhaps Rydstrom, um, was, in fact, mentored by Ben Burt. And uh, we just, we come full circle here uh, all the time, folks. So this podcast is now becoming a John Williams appreciation podcast and a six degrees of separation from Ben Burt podcast. Honestly, this all seems to be six degrees of separation from George Lucas at this point. Sorry, Stephen. We're going to talk about your movies just a little more, but it's going to be close. No, that, the first Tyrannosaurus attack is, um, and it sets it up as a, going back, it's interesting now. I know though we keep talking about the the current Jurassic movies. We're not talking about the current Jurassic movies, but it's interesting for that first appearance of that T-Rex as a kind of a legacy character when you look back. And and again, talking about scale, the um, even the scale of, I guess, the, the action sequences themselves, it's kind of, it, it goes from big to small. You know, you're running in the open field, you're confined to a car. And then of course, you've got the, the side note of then you've got a chase, um, you know, and, and again, Spielberg's talent to move from action set piece to action set piece and keep his foot on the gas and just there has a great sense of knowing when to let up just enough and let you wonder at the dinosaurs again before they start terrifying you once more, whether they're spitting venom into your eyes or uh, devouring you uh, out of a plastic cubicle. Another uh, part of that scene that really gets me is when the Tyrannosaur is, you know, stomping on the car and you see Lex and Tam like being crushed between the car and the, and the ground that has become muddy. Um, and, and it's just this, like, I, I, you know, I think what, what, what's so great about that scene is that they're playing with space. You know, Gabe, you talked about going from big yeah, exactly. to small, and then you go from small to smaller to being crushed to being confined. So you have like, you know, the, the, the tension that's being, built almost in a sense of claustrophobia in a sense that you you feel like you are literally watching these characters drown in this in this sort of mud mud pile um, that's a scene that's just like really really jarring for me anytime that i see it yeah totally uh, it, again is it looks almost like the camera's sinking into the mud to, like we're at their level so the mud's rising from the bottom and the car's rising from the top of the frame I and mean, we're right there with it yep Talk about a claustrophobic scene. Let's move on to the raptors in the kitchen. I mean, I I, I, oh, I yeah. proclaimed my love for 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 little Timmy during the last one. I think Lex and Tim are really the unsung heroes of this movie. Kids in any sort of movies, but especially kids in action movies, are a real roll of the dice. And Lex and Tim really do hold their own, and especially in this scene, it's just the two of them, and they're you know doing anything they can. They convey the, the terror on their, on their face very believably. It's very 
it's a really good acting job by those two actors. Um, and th they both pull a little trick out of their hat, Lex with climbing in the little compartment and then using the reflection to fool the T-Rex, or to fool the raptor, excuse me. And then um, Tim getting one to chase him into the freezer where it slips and then he's able to lock that raptor inside. That's a tremendous uh, scene of tension and it's claustrophobic because they're stuck in this kitchen. There's no way, there's nowhere for them to go. Well, and you guys talk about the, the scale, big versus little. It's just, it's classic David versus Goliath. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And, and you're rooting, you know, we are rooting for David against the Goliath of whether it's the Velociraptors who we've, you know, we may not have been super familiar with at the start of the movie, but we've established pretty early on just how dangerous these things are through a couple of different scenes. I referenced the one at the beginning. We get the great intro to the raptor scene uh, with the cow that is lunchtime for the raptors. And, and let's not forget the very beginning of the movie and the wonderful opening shot of the rustling trees at night. You know you're going to a dinosaur movie. You still watch that scene with the trees rustling at the very beginning, and you think, oh, my God, we're going to see a dinosaur three seconds into this movie. Ah, uh, no, we're not. It's just a truck that's moving a dinosaur cage in. So we've established how dangerous the raptors are. It's total David versus Goliath with the T-Rex. But I think what really hammers these scenes in particular home and it's why i'm not going to reference any favorite dino scenes from jurassic park 3 because i don't think this movie does a far less good job of it than the original and that is the use of yes cgi computer generated effects but also practical effects there is some wonderful puppet work and models that were created for this movie, whether it's the T-Rex, there's a number of, of actual practical, you know, T-Rex moments. The Triceratops scene is a wonderful use of a practical, real effect. And it's just, I mean, we, we talked about it during our, you know, way back when, when we extolled the virtues of the Mandalorian. Why is that show so darn good? Because Baby Yoda, the combination of the puppet and the CGI effects is just masterful. And for me, that started with this movie. It just hammers it home because these the threat feels real. It doesn't feel distant. It doesn't feel like I'm in a video game. It feels like I'm in the Ford Explorer. It feels like I'm in the kitchen. The threat feels genuine. I want to throw out a bit of trivia and I'm curious if anybody knows how many CGI shots do you guys think are in this movie in Jurassic Park 1 the very first yeah, one in the first one I mean these days I know some studio picks we're talking in the, in the I think in the thousands I think we're in like we're in the hundreds I want to say like the mid to low hundreds for Jurassic Park when you movie. say shots do you mean like scenes or like actual cuts of a camera so i i don't know <laughs> the answer the answer that, that i read is 60 compared to phantom menace which had over 2000 yeah so dan you're absolutely right stan winston is the guy who did the the practical effects dinosaurs and take a few minutes and watch the behind the scenes for this movie those, like, even when you see the puppeteers moving that T-Rex around, it, he, he is incredible looking. Because, like you say, Dan, he looks real. 
that terror is the terror, the wonder, it is right up in your face. And I think the, the, the theory that I've heard about why this movie kind of gets all of these pieces so correct is that it was CGI was just good enough to make this big leap and practical effects were as good as they ever got. After this, no one was going to spend the time and money to make a really great you know, mechanical T-Rex anymore when you could just do it with CGI and it would be so much faster and cheaper. But Spielberg didn't know that he could do that. They tell this story about watching the, the CGI dinosaur running for the first time and the, the stop motion animator says the line that it ends up in the movie, I think I'm extinct. And, you know, and, and even for, for this movie, Spielberg takes those stop motion guys and turns them into digital animators. So whenever they're using digital animation, they're using people who come from the stop motion world to make all the movements as real as possible. I think in terms of the craft of filmmaking, which maybe I'm stepping on Gabe's toes a bit here, but this movie is so impressive with how they combined all of these elements uh, together. And I, I mentioned Stan Winston, um, Dennis Muren of ILM and Phil Tippett was, is the, um, is the stop motion guy, uh, who did the, the, the Rancor monster and like the Tauntaun in star Wars and, the, the, the story of these guys sitting around watching, you know, the whole world of cinema change, you know, about a year and a half before the rest of us see it is, 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 is quite a story. I think it's a really excellent point about the first Jurassic Park, Josh, that it, it came about at this perfect time, this crux of exactly what you described, that digital effects were better than they had been for a while. They had just sort of crossed over. And yeah, the, I agree 100% that the more things that are real on screen, the better the feel the world you're trying to create is going to be. That's true of The Mandalorian. That's true of any of the movies we extol the virtues of in our generation. And it's true here. It feels real. And, and it's that realism that carries through the, the authenticity. Um, Spielberg says, too, on these movies, he doesn't like to do, he doesn't let the actors do rehearsals. He wants them to, you know, react to the dinosaur for the first time. He wants their organic reactions to being in these, in these scenes. Um, and it's just so much easier for the actors. It's so much better for the audience. It's better for you, it's better for me, it's better for them when it's real. Um, and it's something that Jurassic Park, it sells that. And frankly, uh, The Lost World as well. It's um, definitely a lesser film, kind of in a, in a Raiders and Temple of Doom type of way, although not as bad as Temple of Doom. But it does have some really impressive uh, creature effects work. Uh, I'm thinking of when the Tyrannosaur noses its way into the tent when they've stopped for the night, when... Uh, um, Sarah and, uh, and, and Malcolm's daughter are, are in there. Can't believe I've forgotten her name. But also, actually, that uh, raptor scene when eventually they're all fleeing from the T-Rex just after that, and they run into the tall grass, and they're being warned by our, by our guy not to, not to do exactly what they're doing. And you get that high-angle shot, and you just see these traces cut through the grass of the raptors coming in, you know, that, that pack coming in for the kill. And then they get, you just start seeing them get snatched from below the grass line. It's, a, it's another good moment. You know, there's a, there's a couple of good sequences in, in The Lost World, uh, even if it doesn't always um, fly on its own, with its own wings. Out of the long grass! <laughs> exactly it, yeah. Speaking uh, of flying, the... Jurassic Park 3, the Pteranodon birdcage is yes. a pretty cool scene. Yeah, um, actually, I like that. You know, I, 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 I don't think those dinosaurs look incredible, but that, again, that's a, 
that's a scene that you know more or less was in the original Jurassic Park novel and they couldn't get it in the original movie and it's nice to get to see that what I love about that scene is sort of the like inside out reveal of it you don't have that panoramic view of the birdcage until after they're swimming out from underneath it um but yeah i I think that the the sort of the inside out reveal of that is just a is and and how they're playing with the space and how they're playing with the setting and the weather to sort of mask that as much as possible in that moment um josh I, i i do ultimately agree with you that in terms of best dino scenes from Jurassic Park 3 that one's certainly up there if not the the unanimous number one well and it's finally the payoff of getting to see pterodactyls or pterodons here in a Jurassic Park movie I mean heck it took until the very very end of the lost world to finally see one of these things and that's kind of a nice play off the way the you know Jurassic Park the first one ends uh, with, with the birds flying alongside the helicopter and sort of playing off of that. But I just want to go back quickly to the first Jurassic Park. Is it correct that the very first time you see a velociraptor, like head on, is in the maintenance shed with Ellie with like 30 minutes left in the movie? I think so. Yeah, because before then they're in their enclosure, and then Muldoon and Ellie see that they've escaped, but they don't actually encounter one until right? Ellie's in the shed. Even Nedry knew not to mess with the raptor fences. Yeah, I, I just think that's masterful storytelling because this is a basically a, a quote-unquote villain that's been introduced in the opening three minutes of the movie, and we don't see it until. There's 30 minutes left, and the reveal is just haunting. It's You get the moment of, we're back in business, and then, bang, no, you're not. You are officially up. You know what's Creek all over again. And then the raptors start, you know, start to show up and, and really wreak some havoc, and then that's when you get the kitchen scene. But, it, yeah, it just kind of struck me in watching this movie again the other day of, like, my God, I mean, we go 90 minutes talking about the Raptors and how much trouble they're going to cause. Dan, that's the scene that I remember in the theater being like, I'm glad I'm seeing this with my mom. That was the scene that scared me the most as a kid. The Velociraptors are a great, and Dan, you're so right. I hadn't realized they come in so late in the game. I mean, they're almost like the henchman bad guy of Jurassic Park. If, you know, you got the T-Rex sort of the big one but i think that's actually kind of the genius of their inclusion i mean part of the reason they're so terrifying is they're a lot closer to our height so like you're face to face with one as opposed to staring up at one and also those claws remain huge and they make they also make terrifying sounds but the the trick like the t-rex is scary but it's also cool it's really tough to find that balance between keeping the again you know we're talking this is family entertainment to a degree here and we all thought that these dinosaurs were great these movies made a lot of money Everybody went to go see them. So you're really hitting that balance between making the dinosaurs too scary and making it like, it's science. These are animals. It's really neat. And the Velociraptors, I think, help with that because then the T-Rex comes in almost as kind of nature again, you know, as is the the thematic case with Jurassic Park, um, to not necessarily save our heroes, but save the day because, you know, they're animals, they're territorial. It's, I just think that's an interesting wrinkle, you know, that it keeps the T-Rex from being the out-and-out villain the Velociraptors get to have sort of their own starring role and they're not forgotten. They could, they persist through the franchise through now. So then that's actually a, a narratively. And I guess that's both in the book and in, and in the film, uh, a really nice inclusion 
um, to keep things for to keep things a little fresh. And you know, in terms of Velociraptors, you know, I, I love how we're talking about all the great scenes that they're in in this first movie. That's also juxtaposed, unfortunately, with what is, for my money, the worst dinosaur scene in any of these three films, and that's the Velociraptor dream sequence in Jurassic Park Three. Alan. <laughs> Um, and again, we'll get we'll we'll get soon enough to my to my hot take on Jurassic Park three. I I actually no, we'll just yeah, get to yeah, it right now. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it right seem, now. Now, now so, seems like the perfect time. Yeah. So Jurassic Park three is the worst of the three movies. That is not my hot take. What my hot take is is that I don't think it's as bad as we as people will typically say and and specifically i think what my hot take is is that i think it's closer to the lost world than what than the lost world is to jurassic park um it's not going in a way going away the absolute worst of these three films and a couple of key reasons so We've talked through some of the big faults of this movie. Dan, you pointed out earlier that, you know, you have this, like, non-believability of Grant even being near the island. He says to a wide audience, like, no power on heaven or earth is going to get me on this island. And then all of a sudden, 24 hours, 24 hours later, he's there. That doesn't really make sense. I'm not buying that. The dream sequence that I just mentioned is awful. The dialogue in this movie is also horrible. Half of it is just one person yelling another person's name. Um... But in terms of some of its strengths, it does embrace sort of like the escape nature of this film or of a Jurassic Park film, right? Like you get on the island and then everything after that is just trying to get off the island after that. You also have the speed of the film. For me, the, 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 the whatever strength there is in this film, it comes out of the speed of this film. Compared in... In, in film length. You have Jurassic Park is just over two hours. You have The Lost World, which is about two hours and 15 minutes. Jurassic Park 3 is an hour and a half. They knew what they were doing. They knew what the purpose of the film was. They got in, they got out. They did not try to do more than they could with the hour and a half. I, I will challenge you that they knew what they were doing, but I do think they salvaged something entertaining. They knew what they were doing in naming a movie with the title Jurassic Park, knowing it would make money. And so it didn't really need to be any good because dopes like us, were going to go see it anyway. And I will say this about Jurassic Park 3. Jurassic Park 3 does hold a special place in my heart because Jordan and I did go see this movie together in theaters. And this was back in two, it would have been the summer of 2001. So I was just finished my sophomore year of college. You come home from college and I get to take my little brother to the movies. And this was back in a time when, you know, I got to take my little brother the brother to the movies. So this was a time when he thought that I was still cool. And that may have been the last time that he thought that I was cool. So for that reason alone, and dinosaurs on the big screen, I will give it that. But the rest of this movie is just a complete and utter train wreck it's not good it should not even hold the name jurassic park to it this movie just doesn't look right you watch jurassic park and you watch the lost world and then you watch jurassic park 3 and jurassic park 3 looks like a b horror movie or a b monster movie compared to the original jurassic park movies and you know dan you're you're ultimately correct again i i began my hot take by probably you know putting it in the refrigerator actually and letting it cool off a little bit by saying that, you know, Jurassic Park three is definitely, 
the worst of these three films because it definitely is. But again, just one last point in terms of, and it's more of a sort of a contrasting point and talking about the speed of this film and, you know, just really, you know, adding in the scenes that needed to be in there and not adding in extra scenes that may have that uh, aside from the the raptor dream sequence uh but i contrast that to the lost world now the lost world has some great dinosaur scenes that we'll touch on a little bit more here in a moment but it also has the tyrannosaurus rex in san diego and and i and i and i see that part of the film so often and i just think like why did you have to do this? Why? I, I get that. I get that. That was the original plan that they were trying to bring. That they were trying to bring the dinosaurs to this museum. So you're you're kind of finalizing that. But it just doesn't have the same feel. You know, Dan, you talked about you know Jurassic Park three not looking like a Jurassic Park movie, and I do think that you made some good valid points there. T Rex in San Diego. It doesn't look like a Jurassic Park movie to me. It looks like it looks like they're trying to make it a Godzilla movie. Um, and and, and you know that that extra scene or that extra collection of scenes at the end of the lost world lengthens that movie and makes it drag out a little bit where I feel like with Jurassic park three, you know, not a lot of great things are happening in it necessarily, but it certainly doesn't drag too much. Jay, you're absolutely right about that speed of Jurassic park three and how the San Diego part really does drag for lost world. The first one in length is is just about as long as Lost World, if I remember your your math correctly. But yeah, I think feels... Jurassic Park is like two hours nine minutes, and Lost World is a bit more. I think it's like an extra ten minutes. Jurassic Park feels so much shorter. I get to the end of that movie every time and and think like, wow, like what just happened? I mean, it is a whirlwind, and what a capper on on that movie the t-rex roar i i think at the end i think of that as like the death star explosion of our generation i mean what a monumental scene that is i mean i i've talked a few times about watching movies with my jaw on the floor that that is one that is crystallized that never seen anything like this before and again like you said like you the point you were making dan about it being dark sometimes this is in the light it's got the the when dinosaurs ruled the earth banner coming down i mean it is just a a complete shot and you get that magnificent roar i love that scene so much um and it it really just does put such an exclamation point on the end of jurassic park and part of that too is that movie by that point has thoroughly earned that moment I mean, everything in terms of the spectacle and the wonder and the, the never seen this before in, you know, anywhere is all, it, it's all carried in that moment. I think that's part of the problem with The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. It, it's tough to capture lightning in a bottle twice. And it's not to say that The Lost World doesn't have some serviceable parts, but Jordan, I think your comparison that Jurassic Park 3 in quality is a lot closer to The Lost World than The Lost World is to Jurassic Park. I think that's the perfect line. So while that scene at the end of The Lost World in San Diego certainly drags The Lost World down, there are plenty of redeemable scenes in that, in that film as well, especially dino-centric scenes. Uh, you know, so, Dorks, what, what, are your, what are some of your favorite scenes in The Lost World? 
I'll, I'll chime in here first. Uh, I'm going to go to, we sort of mentioned this scene in passing a little bit to give some love to Toby from the West Wing, a.k.a. Richard Schiff. Uh, but I'm going to when the trailers are pushed over the edge and kind of even leading up before that because it's the first time in the Jurassic Park franchise that we get two T-Rexes in the same scene. We know there was, you know, the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, but now we get double the T-Rex goodness, the sort of presumably mother and father defending the baby. And so I guess you get three T-Rexes if you count the baby as well. But I'm talking about two full-grown T-Rexes attacking, you know, this trailer, pushing it over the edge, you know, grappling with our our heroes. And of course, um, you know, Richard Schiff's untimely demise and that, it's unfortunate that he has to bite the dust, but man, oh man, do the T-Rexes pull off one heck of a move to end his existence in the movie. He gets chomped out of the Jeep and then gets flipped in midair. The other T-Rex grabs onto his legs and they effectively rip him apart. It's kind of gnarly when you think about it, but in the cinema, when you're watching it on the big screen, T-Rex is chomping him in half pretty darn cool but more of that nighttime terror t-rex goodness we've been talking about the way this franchise plays with tension the way you talked about gabe so that's certainly a scene for me because of our love of t-rexes and the love of the tension in these movies that's one that stands out to me from the lost world yeah poor richard schiff just snaps like a wishbone my my goodness um the the, the only thing thing that i really want to mention from lost world uh, and I'll sort of go at it from the dino scene point of view, because that's where we are, um, is Pete Postlewaite. He's just one of my favorite actors, and he's really fun in this movie. Uh, the dino roundup scene where he d- turns back to to the, the dopey, dweeby nephew and says, you know, oh, you can keep my fee. All we need you to do is sign the checks and open your case of scotch when we have a good day, and all I want is to hunt one of the tyrannosaurs. And his hunting of the, the the male the buck buck only uh is is a cool dinosaur element throughout lost world that first scene um is pretty striking when uh, you're introduced to just beyond that moment when it's the uh the sort of dinosaur safari as it were and you've got all these vehicles that i really only remember in toy form you know going through the landscape and and the the pretty intricate and i mean exciting but kind of also you know awful and terrifying way they they hunt down and trap these dinosaurs when you sort of consider that this is also extrapolated probably from, you know, real life scenarios. It's just now applied to caging the wonder of a dinosaur. Um, and yeah, Pete Postlewaite is really an interesting character. He's maybe even a better one than the lost world deserves because he's clearly got his own code of honor and he revels in the sport of all these things. But by the end, he can clearly see that uh, Ludlow is just a creep and is, you know, keeping the park alive for his own creepy purposes. So yeah, his participation, his growth over this, um, because again, he's another guy, as we've talked about, who is kind of a villain, but also kind of is not. He is an antagonist to, to, as a throwback to our, one of our earlier podcasts, but he's far more complex than just a straight up bad guy, like um, you know, the hunter in Jumanji or any number of animated Disney movies. And going back to earlier podcasts, some of those vehicles from that scene, Gabe, that you're talking about should have probably been mentioned in our in our vehicles podcast the way the seats would go out at the side like that's a that's a real neat little uh little gizmo they thought of yeah those sort of spring out nets 
thing to catch uh, all those all those dinosaurs. Yeah, it's a great toy line. But I think isn't that part of the thing with Lost World? Then it, it uh, you know, the series kind of suffers a degradation over time. Uh, you know, the knife isn't as sharp the more you use it. And event in the second one is kind of a hybrid of uh, exciting dino action, also toys. I think what's so cool about that scene in particular is just the introduction you get to a number of different dinosaurs you didn't get to see in the yeah. original Jurassic Park. Yeah. You know, you know, you guys talked about how the Josh, you mentioned the reason this the original is so good is because computer generated effects had started to come to the forefront a little bit, like the tech was good enough to make the movie, but there were still practical effects at their height. Four years have passed between the original and the lost world. So that computer animation has taken a huge step. And so they have the ability, you know, now to do a whole lot more and we get more, you know, broad landscapes filled with different kinds of dinosaurs and to be able to, you know, be introduced to that, at least in that initial scene, I think is really cool. Jurassic Park three then takes it too far. And it's just like vomiting dinosaurs all over the screen as if that's good enough to make a good movie. And while it may have been mildly entertaining, not a good movie. And the More than just mildly entertaining. Meh, my, mildly. The Lost World is, I'll give it this, clever in its application of, um, of its effects again. I mean, they, they sort of, they dispense with the wonder of the dinosaurs outright. They know it's a thing that's been punctured. So they give you just these little dinosaurs on the beach at first. Oh, these are cute little guys. And you've got that same sort of um, jawsy and terror that kind of goes, you know, what's happening off screen that, you know, you don't know the little girl is okay until a couple of scenes later. That's sort of lingering with you for a little bit. Um, but again, that's also, as uh, we were discussing before, that's broad daylight and close up, not just the uh, at scale sense of wonder that we were talking about from the effects in the first movie. Um, and they do that again. Yeah, you're right. In that dinosaur hunting scene, broad daylight. And, and again, they still look pretty good. It's, um, it doesn't really distract from the ride of the movie. Like the point of that scene, it's not like, and eh, these effects aren't holding up. It's like, oh man, I can't believe they're doing that to these cool looking dinosaurs. You know, in that opening scene, something else that I noticed too, actually I have to give credit to my wife for noticing it. It's not, di not dino centric, but there is a really alarming number of attendants in that first scene. You've got, the ratio is like, is like two to one. You know, when you have the attendants rushing after the girl, it's 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 like a it's like a wave of them. I, I don't know, Jay. From from what I've seen on Below Deck and Below Deck Med, I think that that's probably ab about about what you'd expect for, from one of the from one of these yacht cruises. I guess it's clear that 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 at least one of us has no no knowledge about yachts uh but but one last point in terms of that dino roundup scene before i round up this set of dinos and dole out some points um i appreciate too in that scene that you know something that kind of holds true to the first jurassic park too is that it is at least somewhat steeped in the science and the research. I'm thinking specifically of the, the dinosaur that I mentioned in my favorite dinosaur, the Pachycephalosaurus, that has, um, you know, you have like the background information about the dinosaur that's provided in that scene too. You know, perhaps that's the educator in me saying like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that we're teaching kids too and not just saying, hey, look, dinosaurs are cool. Um, but, but I think is a redeeming aspect of that scene as well. In terms of redeeming, we'll also talk about who will be redeeming some points here in this uh, from this two-point question. A lot of different directions that we could go in. Um, 
you know, Josh, you kind of set it up on a tee there in terms of talking about the Dino Roundup scene, which is such a great scene. Gabe, I'm sure you did some nice stuff too. I just can't remember it. So Dan's going to be getting the two points here for the astute observation that two T-Rexes and really three if you count the baby. And I think you do have to count the baby. Um, You know, it's uh, and maybe I'm saying that because Nolan is now making noises kind of sound like a baby t-rex um but but definitely that astute observation that two t-rexes are better than just one dan two t-rexes two points well done two t-rexes two points two nolan references in the podcast there's a developing theme here boy do i hate being right all the time well, dorks, we've talked about the great dinosaur scenes and non-dinosaur scenes, as well as the scenes that left us wanting a little bit more. But hold on to your butts, because we're about to move on to the three-point question. We're going to be going to Gabe first. Gabe, what do you love most about Jurassic Park? For me, I'm going to try and keep it simple this time. For, for me, what we love about Jurassic Park, what I love about Jurassic Park, is the first movie. Um, and I'm fine with all the movies that come after it, but it is, but nothing has recaptured like the perfect blockbuster filmmaking. I'm sure I said that about Raiders of the Lost Ark or Last Crusade, but Steven Spielberg's a master of this, uh, and I'll go on to explain why, helpfully here in a moment. But Jurassic Park really is, again, maybe the as Jaws was for that time. Jurassic Park might be the popcorn movie of our generation. Um, it's suspenseful. It's got great characters. Um, you follow along with it. You're living it right along with them. It looks great. It's exciting, it's new, it's wonderful, uh, pretty much on, on every front. And again, John Williams um, makes you feel it throughout. It, for me, it comes down to, um, if again, I'm referencing other Spielberg, Jurassic Park works because I think it's equal parts Indiana Jones and Jaws. It has all the adventure highs of the greatest of Indiana Jones, and it's got all the monster thrills of the Jaws claustrophobia. You know, the, if, as you, if you boil it down, there's it's similar you know whether you're in the cabin of the orca as jaws is slamming his way into the boat or if you're in the kitchen hoping the raptors don't break inside he's pulling similar tricks but to greater effect and the maybe the best trick that spielberg makes it happen here is that it is all of these things it is an adventure movie it is a horror movie but it also has that sense of wonder that he does so well and not just from the kids um but from the adults and that's the the quicksilver of using dinosaurs you know it could be this could have been, you know, another King Kong thing. It could have been any sort of monster movie, but it's dinosaurs and it's so old and, you know, it's, but we know they existed and it's just impossible to look away at history brought to life. And that's, that's what you see through every character in a different way. Um, Jurassic Park is pitch perfect and it was so good that they had to do it, you know, four or five more times. And I'm not even mad about it because there's still entertaining highs to be found even amongst the lows of what follows. That's a tough act to follow, Gabe, because you basically hit the nail right on the head. I I think for me, it probably just simply boils down to dinosaurs on the big screen. I mean, you know, we're all four quote-unquote men who behave like boys most of the time, but in a much earlier age, we all literally were little boys who went through our various dinosaur and toy phases and here comes a movie that combines all of that in the best way possible and has sustained for you know going on almost 30 years now probably by the time the newest Jurassic World uh, finally hits the big screen but the the wonder that you 
talk about and reference there, Gabe, is like the wonder that I talked about earlier when first seeing the movie. I mean, we all have these dinosaur phases as kids. Our breath is taken away with the idea of these creatures that lived 65 million years ago, and we've seen pictures of them, and we had toys of them, and we wonder what they were like and what they would look like. And now here's a movie that makes it seem so darn real. And there's science that backs it up. And you watch the movie and you think, man, that science kind of makes sense. We could almost do that. You start to think maybe we will have dinosaurs in our lifetime. But even if we don't, here they are on the big screen. You said it, Gabe. It's, it's equal parts terror, equal parts adventure. It's just a whole lot of fun. So for me, it's dinosaurs on the big screen, which is why, yes, Jordan and I went to Jurassic Park 3, why, yes, I continue to watch the Jurassic World movies, even though they're not terribly good, and why, yes, whenever Jurassic World Dominion, I think is what the newest one will be called, whenever that comes out, even if it's human-dino hybrids or if it's dinosaurs put into, you know, military force, I will pay the 1875 or whatever the movie theaters are going to charge and I am going to go because I know it's going to be wonderful. And the last thing that I will say is that I know even with the newer movies, you still are guaranteed the Jurassic Park theme, which is some of John Williams' best work. That original soundtrack is a must-own if you are a movie soundtrack fan, not just because of the main fanfare. It's a phenomenal soundtrack, but that main fanfare, you watch that movie, you get that stuck in your head, it's going to be in there for a good three to four days solid, I promise. So, yeah, that's for me. I mean, I know I've kind of pinballed around a number of areas, but it's Jurassic Park, the original, is one of my five all-time favorite movies. And, and the wonder that that franchise has created, I think, has only, for me, grown through the years. So I'll come at this from kind of the opposite perspective of Dan, and I'll talk about what I love about Jurassic Park now as an adult or, or maybe what I've come to love most recently about it. Um, in preparing for this podcast, I listened to the audiobook of Crichton's novel and it's amazing how much, how much of the dialogue he kind of wrote. And it, it makes a lot of sense of why he gets the, some of the screen gets half the screenwriting credit. So much of Ian Malcolm's dialogue is pulled straight from the novel and it's that dialogue that I want to focus on for what I love now about Jurassic Park. He has some really interesting things to say about science and I want to focus on the part where he he says that the science didn't require any discipline to attain it. And that's a line that Goldblum delivers really well in that in that lunch scene that Dan brought up earlier and he goes a little bit deeper in the book and describing what he means. And the example that he gives is that like a, someone who is like a black belt in karate, that's a discipline that you have to take time to learn. And that when you get to the end of it, you are physically capable of killing a man with your bare hands. But the act of becoming that, the discipline that it took to become that, teaches you not to use it unless you have to. The person who buys a gun, takes the shortcut to being able to kill someone, you know, and that 
act of just going and buying something takes no discipline at all. So you don't learn anything along the way. And that really crystallized what Goldblum was talking about in that scene is that this, this science that had been built up for years and years and years and years and years. And then as he says, your guys took the next step. They didn't do all the work that it took to learn all this power of genetic technology and what it could theoretically be used for. And so they didn't have an appreciation for it when they decided, hey, wait, we can make dinosaurs. Um, and I just thought that was a really, a, a really neat way of thinking about it, crystallized it in a different way. And it's just, you, you know, like Dan says, you can watch this movie at midnight with, you know, several beers or sodas in you and just be like, holy cow, that T-Rex is, is really cool. Or you can list, you can watch it with a real discerning eye and think your way through it. That's one of the things that makes it so great. So that's kind of what has struck me about Jurassic Park most recently. I feel like we were just attending Alan Grant's paleontology school with that with that deep dive into the into the literature. And and Josh, you know that 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 tugs right at my educator heartstrings. So. I'm not going to give that, anything. That's that's chaos theory. That's <laughs> chaos theory. I'm not going to give anything away just yet, but I, I have some difficult decisions to make here in a moment. Um, I mean, just to echo my thoughts in terms of what you all have already said in terms of this question, um, you know, I, I could really repeat, you know, verbatim everything that all of you just said, pitting all the points, uh, as Dan said, you know, right on the head. Uh, for me, though, in terms of when I think about what I love most, about Jurassic Park. It's something and rather someone that we've mentioned quite a few times on this podcast, and that's John Williams. Uh, when I was rewatching specifically the first Jurassic Park, um, it, it, it occurred to me that if I had to choose one single fanfare, one single track from all of John Williams's catalog, it would be the main title to Jurassic Park. This is a fanfare that I just adore. And, and part of it is, as Dan said, you know, it immediately gets stuck in your head. But it, it, I think it captures the grandiose nature of all the things that we've talked about in terms of Jurassic Park. And it just hits that John Williams fanfare um, so well throughout the entirety. So for me, in terms of what I love most about Jurassic Park, definitely be John Williams. That being your favorite John Williams theme, there's your hot take, Jay. I mean, there's plenty to choose from. And it's, a, and again, a defensible opinion, but best ever, there's your hot take. Yes, yes. Way, way, to, way to bury the lead, man. Yeah, that's. I had a hot take. I just didn't realize what it was. Now it's now it's chilled about as much as the Chilean sea bass. You just got your notes mixed up. That's all. It is. Yeah, that's all it was. That's that's all it was. I, I can barely read this. Throughout the entirety of the the show here, Dork's great work, especially here in this third question, really really great work. A lot of different directions that I could go in. Um, Dan, I will have to say that in terms of the other material that was brought during the third point question, you didn't quite hit it there as much as as much as as much as uh, Josh and Gabe. So you won't be leaving with these points. That said, I do want to you know I do want to you know point out the fact that you talked about the dinos on the big screen. That's definitely one of the redeeming one of the powerful aspects of Jurassic Park, the biggest reason why the two of us went to Jurassic Park 3. And you mentioned John Williams too, you know, and, and again, that that fanfare being my favorite, that was definitely something that, that made me think about giving you the points. Josh, 
you know, you, you, you tugged at my educator heartstrings, as I already mentioned, um, a really, really in-depth, thoughtful analysis of Crichton's novel and specifically the dialogue that goes along with that. And really talking about a key thematic aspect of the story that that's very central, obviously, to the first movie, but is carried through the subsequent films as well. But ultimately, Josh, you're not going to be leaving with these points either. The points are going to be going to Gabe primarily for his astute observation, not only that Jurassic Park is so wonderful because it's a combination and, and, and a really, really adept combination of all these different genres, but I really, really liked his take of it being equal parts Indiana Jones and Jaws. Just thought that that was a very, very interesting take on Jurassic Park and really captures so much of what we love about it. So, you know, Gabe, throughout this, throughout this uh, whole podcast, you would not be contained. You broke free, you expanded new territories, and you crashed through barriers painfully and maybe even dangerously. And for that, congratulations on winning the Jurassic Park podcast. I feel as shocked as though I just grabbed a 10,000-volt fence just as they turned the power back on. I, I, I can't believe, honestly, that, I've, uh, I, that you've taken my, my pithy – quip over josh's thoughtful and excellent answer it's something that's so rare here on, on this dork fest but you know what um i'll take it you know i mean i've been in some financial problems and i know you don't want to debate me on those problems mr hammond so uh, i'm going to take my points and, and try and smuggle them off the island well and honestly it's something we can slap we can slap on a lunchbox it's because I said that I listened to the audio book instead of reading the, the, the darn thing. I, 90% of this Dorkfest is, is in the library. Research, reading. Wrong franchise, but... I had the exact same thought, Josh. If you had, if you had copped to reading the book, guaranteed win. Hard no one would have believed that, though. Hard to believe the guy who admittedly came to Jurassic Park late like as in a decade or so late comes away with the victory, but congratulations, Gabo. Well-deserved. Big Gabe, the human piece of toast. <laughs> that is one big pile of. And with that, another episode of Dork Fest, the podcast is in the books. Don't you mean extinct? We hope you enjoyed listening to our deep dive into the first three Jurassic Park films. We tried to show some intelligence and maybe even some problem solving intelligence, never striking the same spot too many times but we really just hope that you're not left feeling like we were as disappointing as a couple of six foot turkeys for dan josh and gabe i want to thank you all for listening please follow us on instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast where our web curator that's dan has prepared a delightful array of different content for you to peruse no chili and sea bass i'm afraid dorks please remind me to thank gabe for a lovely podcast and to our listeners please remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you find your podcast we hope you all enjoyed yourself and will join us next time on Dorkfest, the podcast god creates dinosaurs god destroys dinosaurs god creates man man destroys god man creates dinosaurs dinosaurs eat man dorks inherit the earth